Treasure Island, Part 3. When Jim and Ben Gunn had seen the Union Jack flying from the fort, Ben said that it must certainly be the Squire and the Doctor. When Jim expressed doubt, Ben countered that if it were Long John, he would have flown the Jolly Roger, since there was nowhere here to deceive any longer. Ben was eager to head home to England, but he was terribly, terribly afraid of Long John. Even Flint himself had been. So he elected not to join Jim's party just yet. He wanted to meet with the doctor and the squire outside the board, so he told Jim that they could find him the next day at the place where the two had met, and that if whomever came there carried a white flag with them, Ben would know he was safe and they could talk. He made Jim promise that he wouldn't forget his new friend and not mention him to Silver under any circumstance. With that, they went their separate ways, and Jim crept up to the fort, trying not to be seen by pirates. As he snuck around, he saw the Hispaniola bobbing in the bay, flying the despicable Jolly Roger. He also found the place where Ben Gunn had mentioned that he had hidden his little boat during their walk together. Once inside the fort, Jim told the men all about his adventures, and he adjusted to the sandy, smoky interior of the stockade, which had no proper chimney. One of their fallen shipmates lay deceased in the corner covered with another Union Jack flag. Before they could be brought down by their circumstances, the captain kept them busy by having them cook, stand guard, cut firewood, and otherwise prepare themselves for the, a battle for their little fort. Several times during the day, the doctor visited Jim as he was keeping guard to clear the smoke out of his eyes and chat a little. He asked what Jim made of Ben Gunn. Jim said that he seemed like a decent person, but that he might not be sane. The doctor replied that if there was any doubt about Ben's sanity, then he must be sane, as three years of isolation would break almost anyone since it goes against human nature. He asked Jim to clarify that it was cheese that Ben Gunn had been craving for. When Jim confirmed this, the doctor told him a wonderful secret. Through the whole journey, the doctor had carried a beautiful snuff box with him, but had never used any tobacco. This was because inside the box, the doctor kept a large piece of nutritious Parmesan cheese that had come straight from Italy. Smiling, he confided in Jim that this would be his gift for the poor abandoned Maroonie. By the time Jim woke up the next day, the men had long been awake. Jim was only aroused by them exclaiming that Long John was coming upon them, waving a flag of truce. The captain warned Jim and the men to keep a watch as this was almost certainly a trick. The men loaded their muskets and waited to see the one-legged man's approach. Long John stated that the pirates had voted him as captain after Captain Smullett had deserted them. The two men sat and lit their pipes as though they were having a friendly conversation. When Silver complained that it was cold to be sitting outside, the captain returned that if he had been a faithful man, he would be warm and cozy inside the ship's galley, but he had chosen a very different path. Long John accused the captain of beheading some of his men on the beach while they were all partying, and Jim assumed that Ben Gunn had visited the pirates that night to help even their numbers a little. For despite what Long John thought, it had certainly not been any of the men in the fort. Long John flattered and feigned good manners in an attempt to persuade the captain to give him the treasure map, but the captain said he had no interest in striking a deal with a man untrustworthy enough to lead a mutiny. Long John began to accuse the man Abraham Gray, who had switched sides earlier on the ship, of telling the captain lies, but the captain cut him off, saying that Gray had told him nothing and the captain had asked him nothing. 
leaving Long John to wonder who had told Captain Smollett of his traitorous plans in the first place. Since it was clear that he had no idea Jim Hawkins had overheard him, Long John collected himself, knowing he didn't have the whole story and wanted more information. The two men smoked in silence for a few minutes before Long John Silver tried again. Smollett could give him the chart and stop beheading men, and Silver's crew would drop them off at the nearest island, or Smollett's crew could elect to stay on this island. Having heard Long John's proposal, the captain countered that they would either take the men home for a fair trial, or they would fight Sil Silver's crew down to the last man. He pointed out that Abe Gray had escaped the pirates in a five-on-one battle, and the men were not disciplined enough to sail alone. Silver frowned and struggled to get back to his feet, and exclaimed that the pirates would be back within an hour, and those that died would be the lucky ones. The captain gave the men a tongue-lashing for leaving their posts to listen on the conversation, except for Gray, who was probably trying to prove himself, and he kept guarding his door faithfully. Together, the men began loading the muskets and putting the fires out so that they would not have to fight with smoke in their eyes. He made sure that Jim grabbed some breakfast and sent him back to guard his door. Any moment, the pirates would be upon them. Since neither Jim nor the captain were good shots, they would be the loaders for the other four men. Even with the men Ben Gunn had killed the night before, they still stood at six against fourteen, and it would be a hard night. Suddenly, Mr. Joyce fired into the woods and the pirates returned but hit only the log fort. Then all was quiet again. From his shot burst, he knew they had, near, had three enemies on each of the three sides with the remaining five all pressing in from the north. With a shout, the pirates all swarmed in on the fort. Two men were shot and killed while four pressed into the fort as the rest laid down suppressive fire. In one short moment of dropping their guard, they had all but lost the fort. The men took up their cutlasses and fled out into the open. Jim had just enough time to see the doctor slash his own attacker across the face when he ran into Anderson and had to leap to the side to dodge his cutlass, only to lose his footing and roll down the sandy hill. By the time Jim got to his feet, Gray had taken down the man who had attacked them, and the battle was over. The captain's men got back into the cover of the fort, and five of the pirates had fallen. Joyce had also fallen, and Hunter had been knocked out, and the captain had been badly injured. The mutineers did not attempt to take the fort again that night, so Jim and his friends made dinner and attempted to patch up the wounded. An injured, the injured pirate, Hunter, passed away, never regaining consciousness in his sleep that night. The captain had been shot twice, but it had gone through his shoulder and broken a few bones, but he would make a complete recovery, but he wouldn't be much good for fighting that night. After seeing to the men, the doctor silently swept into the woods to meet with Ben Gunn. Jim grew restless as he baked in the sun-flooded fort, surrounded by the blood of his enemies. It was too much for him to take in. Silently, Jim filled his pockets with biscuits and grabbed a couple of pistols and also crept away into the night when no one was watching. Silent as a fox, he snuck to where Ben Gunn had hidden his little boat. It was a tiny little thing, barely big enough to hold Jim which was made of wood, reeds, and goat skins. After making sure that all of the pirates on shore were completely drunk, he climbed into the awkward little boat and clumsily directed himself towards the Hispaniola as best he could, under cover of darkness. If the murders, mur or sorry, mutineers planned to set sail and leave them behind on the island, Jim intended to foil these plans. 
Between the dark and the fog, no one saw him hiding as he sailed across the bay in Ben Gunn's coracle. She was perfectly safe, but also completely disobedient when it came to steering, so Jim was grateful for the chilly mist hanging in the air, but eventually the tide drew him close to the ship. Carefully, to avoid the rope whipping out at him, Jim cut the rope that held the ship at anchor, all the while faintly registering that the two men aboard the ship were having a wildly drunken argument. As Jim pulled himself hand over hand up the ship, he passed a window where he saw the two men savagely wrestling, too busy fighting to notice him. Jim remembered that the current swept around the island to a much less rocky beach on the other side. Since it was clear that no one was steering the schooner, Jim assumed that she would follow the current around the island. Once on deck, Jim found that the deck had not been swabbed once since the mutiny, and a broken glass bottles rolled across the boards. The two guards both lay on deck. The man with the red cap was dead, sprawled out stiffly. The living guard, Israel Hands, didn't look much better, crumpled into a sickly heap. It seemed that he had won the wrestling match. Jim alerted his weakened shipmate that he was the captain now. Hands appeared to slowly come to himself as Jim took down the Jolly Roger and flew the English flag with a hearty shout of long live the king. Jim told Hands that they were to sail to the north side of the island to beach the Hispaniola. Once they were underway, Hands tied his deep gash on his thigh with a handkerchief and ate and drank and his strength seemed to return to him, which even Jim knew could only be good for a short while. Hands grinned wickedly and patronizingly at Jim the whole time, watching his every move with eerie diligence. While they sailed, Hans smiled and smiled and told Jim how best to get the ship back into sea once she had been run aground, and also tried to persuade Jim to throw the body of the other pirate overboard. Jim pretended that he was not strong enough to throw the body over, and the two discussed the nature of the body and the soul. Hans states that if you kill a man and his spirit goes off to another world, then it's a waste of time to kill him at all if you really want to destroy him. On and on, Hans prattled, occasionally forgetting a word or two, until he admitted that the brandy he had been drinking was a bit too strong for him. He asked Jim to fetch him some wine instead. Jim immediately saw through this pretext to get him off the deck, a trick which might have fooled the boy a few weeks ago. Still, Jim agreed and left to help an old shipmate out. Once out of sight, Jim snuck around the corner where he watched the old scoundrel crawl across the deck and pull a knife from the body of his slain shipmate, made sure that it was sharp, and swiftly returned to where Jim had left him. Jim Hawkins nodded grimly. So, hands could move freely, he was armed, and clearly he intended to hurt the boy or he wouldn't be hiding his weapon or his fitness. Jim knew that he was safe until the schooner was on shore. He took the wine to give to the pirate who was still feigning weakness on deck. He moaned and whined about how unlucky he had been in life. He said no good ever came from being good and that the only man who would survive was the man who struck first. Dead men don't bite, he said. With much effort, they pulled the ship ashore right next to the end stages of a decaying old ship which had been left there long ago. They made an excellent team, but it was a lot of work to get the ship ashore with just the two of them. Hans used the distraction to sneak up on the boy like a cat, claws out, knife drawn. Jim dodged just in time, letting go of the tiller which struck Hans in the chest hard. 
Jim tried to shoot the pirate, but his powder had gotten wet in the unsteady coracle. His hand, hands was upon him, and Jim didn't have time to try his other pistol. They played a deadly game of keep away for a, a time until the Hispaniola struck sand and tipped over. Both men and the boy rolled across the deck, and Jim got up quickly while Hans tried to disentangle himself from his dead shipmate. Jim used the time to climb the mast like a cat and settle himself in the cross trees while Hans tried to recover. As Hans followed up the mast, Jim quickly reloaded his pistols, and as Hans climbed the mast, the dagger in his teeth, an injured leg dangling behind him, Jim finished loading and warned the man that if he didn't stop, he would shoot him. Dead men don't bite, after all, he chuckled, and while Jim was laughing and marinating in his apparent victory, Hans reached over his shoulder and threw the knife at Jim. It sank through the boy's shoulder and into the mast, pinning him in place. In shock, Jim fired one pistol and dropped both into the water, followed by Hans, who had fallen off the mast in the effort to kill the boy. He hit the ship's railing hard as he fell, then splashed into the bay. He sank below the surface, bobbed up to the top, in a bubble of blood that sank for good. Jim could feel his own blood streaming down his back, but he was more afraid of falling from the high mast than he was of his injury. The knife was too deep into the wood of the mast for Jim to be able to pull it free, but in the effort, his flesh and shirt tore, releasing him from the mast. He climbed down to the deck of the ship and pushed the dead pirate in the red cap off the deck to join hands underwater. As the sun began to set, Jim made his way back to the fort to rejoin the doctor and the squire, feeling victorious. He stepped inside the stockade quietly, trying not to awaken anyone in the party. He could hear the men snoring and was reassured by it, and Jim was just thinking how badly they were keeping watch when he heard the shrill, sharp scream of, Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! It was Captain Flint, Silver's parrot, keeping watch at night. Men leapt to their feet, revealing that Jim was not among his friends, but Long John Silver and his band of pirates. Six pirates were present, one of whom was injured, and all of whom had far too much to drink. Silver was surprised to see Jim, who was at least mostly sure that the pirates were about to end his story. Silver told Jim that the captain and the squire had called him ungrateful and cursed him as they had been driven out of the fort, so he figured Jim was no longer welcome to join them. Welcome or not, Jim was just happy to hear that they were alive. Silver told Jim that he was welcome to stay as part of John's, Long John's crew, or to choose not to join, though no one said what would happen to him if he refused. Jim wanted to know more about what happened to his friends before he decided. Silver told him that the previous day, during a parlay, Dr. Livesey had pointed out that the ship was gone and clearly Silver had been betrayed. Apparently, the squire's party had left the fort to the pirate who suspected that they had been the ones that had stolen the ship and sailed off, leaving Silver behind. Jim told Silver that it was he who had heard the mutiny meeting, he who had stolen the ship, and he who had been in the pirate's way the whole time. No matter what had happened to his friends, no matter where they were, Jim Hawkins would not be turning pirate today, for he was the only man alive who did not fear John Silver. Jim only asked that if Silver chose to kill him, that he would tell the doctor what had happened. The crew slowly put together that it was also Jim who took Billy Bones' map, and Jim who had recognized Black Dog in the pub so that he was not able to join their voyage. Slowly, one by one, the crew began to turn on Jim, and since Long John would not let them kill the boy, 
they also began to rebel against him. He replied that if any man wanted to duel him, they were welcome to try, so he could see the color of their insides. No man moved against him. He said that Jim was more than, or more of a man than any two of those pirates, and they were not true gentlemen of fortune if they were willing to make a fuss, but unwilling to fight. The men returned that they had a right to form a council and left the bunkhouse. Silver turned to Jim and told the boy that they were now each other's last chance, as this was certainly the last straw and the crew would turn on him. He promised to save Jim from the pirates if Jim would testify on his behalf should they return to England and he faced hanging. He knew that if Jim had the ship, then he was Silver's only escape. He said that if Jim thought they weren't in enough trouble, it was the doctor himself who had given Silver the treasure map. Why would he do that? If that weren't a sign that something was amiss, he didn't know what. Thank you for tuning in to Southern Fried Storytime. We are so excited to present the last segment of Treasure Island next week for you, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you again, and uh, have a wonderful weekend.